from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. That's actually been one of the hardest parts of having long COVID. Been gaslit by multiple doctors. Fatigue, shortness of breath, brain fog, etc., etc. Just been so disheartening to not be believed. The scientific evidence is very, very clear that repeated infection is not good for you. You know, being being hit by by a hammer on the head, you know, five times is worse than one time. So repeated infection is not good for you. I'm Danny Wisentowski. Since the beginning of the pandemic, winter has come with a surge of COVID-19 infections, or as last year, a fast-spreading variant, which leaves public health officials, hospitals, and businesses scrambling. This year, though, things seem to be different. But is the pandemic truly over? And what have we learned about those suffering from long COVID, whose symptoms of fatigue and brain fog persist long after testing negative for the virus? The CDC estimates 1 in 13 adults have long COVID symptoms, but even after years of study, researchers say much is still unknown about it. To take up those questions, we welcome to the studio Dr. Ziad Al-Ali. Dr. Al-Ali is the Director of Clinical Epidemiology and Chief of Research and Development at the Veterans Affairs St. Louis Healthcare System. He is also a clinical epidemiologist at Washington University's School of Medicine. Doctor, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Delighted to be with you. Yes, it's it's so good to have you here talking about some of these these complicated but but real serious issues. And I guess to start off, tell us a bit about what what is long COVID, and is there a generally accepted definition? Sure. Um, you know, long COVID is a term that that uh, patients actually gave to the disease to the entity. That's a constellation of symptoms uh, and disease manifestations that either linger for a longer, t- long time after the initial infection, usually more than 30 days, or arise anew after the, after the first 30 days of illness, but could be also attributable to, to SARS-CoV-2 infection. What does that really mean? That means that you know, if people had cough and shortness of breath and maybe fatigue or, or other manifestations of acute infection with COVID-19, if those manifestations linger on for a longer time, that is long COVID. If that brain fog really does not resolve in, within four weeks, that usually we, we, that sort of, then we enter the territory of long COVID. So you can think of it as sort of the, the, the umbrella term for all the long-term consequences of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Really an umbrella term that encompasses more than 200 different sequelae or more than 200 different manifestations. Altogether, we lump them under the umbrella term long COVID. And while in the public consciousness, you know, people generally think about fatigue and brain fog, long COVID is much, much more than that. It can affect the heart, the kidneys, in some instances, can lead to increased risk of diabetes and a variety of other manifestations. Now, now doctor, um, w- what I'm hearing in, in your response and, and you know, in my reading of, of long COVID is that this was you know, something, as you say, something that patients began telling their, their physicians about the experiences they were having. And in some ways, these, these were symptoms that didn't fit or, or weren't fully explained by the COVID they'd, ha- they'd had. And so you, you have these hundreds of, of symptoms. But going back to the beginning of the pandemic, where, where did this, this notion of long COVID come from, and is it kind of a mystery? 
Well, thank you for asking this. Really, the credit to really alerting the whole medical community and the scientific community that that, that, that you know there is there are long term consequences to SARS-CoV-2 infection really goes back to the patient community. They, you know, first and foremost, really described this, and I do remember very vividly, very early on in the pandemic in April 2020 reading an op-ed piece by Fiona Lowenstein in the New York Times, you know, saying that everybody was telling me at the time that if I was young and healthy, if I got COVID-19, I get I will get over it within a few days, maybe a week, and then I will, I will regain my health and, every, and, and the whole thing will be over. But yet here I am, was previously young and healthy. I did not have any medical problems at all. And then I'm still having lingering fatigue and shortness of breath and brain fog, et cetera, et cetera. And to their credit, you know, the patient community coalesced around her, coalesced around that op-ed piece, you know, sort of like really flooded her inbox with email. And they formed what, what we call now the patient-led research collaborative. That's one of the very early patient groups that really, you know, uh, that, that sort of, uh, you know, used their voice to, to inform us, inform the rest of us that really something is happening, that, that it was almost like a sort of a Me Too movement for them, you know, that, that there was, you know, Fiona Lewis, he said, I ha- I'm having this fatigue and brain fog, and everybody, you know, a lot of people around us like, oh, well, me too, I'm having that same experience as well. Yeah, and, and doctor, does that imply that, that these patients perhaps had been telling their physicians about their symptoms, and their physicians said, well, just go home and sleep it off? Or would they not be taken seriously until a group of them really coalesced around this op-ed as you talk about? I, th- I think this is really, uh, I think generally speaking, you know, for the past 100 years, we as a medical community sort of ignored the consequences of, of uh, the long-term consequences of viral infections, actually, you know, or, the, or the, actually the, the, you know, infection-associated chronic illnesses have been underfunded and understudied for 100 years. You know, um, the, the idea that long-term consequences can happen after a viral infection is not necessarily specific to SARS-CoV-2. It can also happen after the flu, after polio, after you know polio, Ebola, dengue fever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is really not specific to this virus. But we, as a community of scientists and, and actually funders, have underfunded this to the extent that the, you know the, the the usual provider in the community is not necessarily aware that viruses do have long-term consequences. And and there is a tendency that to to sort of generally sort of uh, ignore what 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 if you, if you, or or attribute things to to maybe some psychosomatic manifestations uh, or psycho psychosomatic disorder if we don't really necessarily understand them hundred percent. So uh, and, and and I think what's really different about SARS-CoV two is really a the scale of it, b the patient engagement early on, and and really they're alerting the community of scientists that this really needs to be studied, and as a result now really the large number of people who are dedicated to studying studying this. And really, the remarkable advance in understanding this that we that we made over the past several years. Yeah, and and if you know, to our listeners, if if you or someone has long COVID, or if you have a question about it for um, Dr. Al Ali in our studio today, we want to hear from you. Give us a call at three one four three eight two eight two five five. That's three eight two talk, or you can send us a tweet at STL on air, or email us at STLPR. Org. And we actually already, we got a tweet from Sarah who wrote, I have, lo- I have had long COVID for 15 months. It feels like brain damage, but all tests are normal. Doctor, this, this scenario that she's describing, she's gotten her tests. You know, she's, she's had these symptoms. She's going to her physicians. 
but they're telling her nothing's wrong and, and presumably sending her home. And, you know, is this a pattern that, that is repeating? And, and that have you seen this? So her experience is not unusual. So so um, it is. It, it doesn't mean there's nothing wrong with her. Absolutely. So brain fog is real. You know, the, the neurocognitive changes or neurocognitive um, uh, impairment in people with long COVID is absolutely, absolutely, absolutely real. I think be, because there are no biomarkers and no specific tests to really uh, diagnose long COVID at this point, it's really hard for you know a lot of the community providers or the, you know the, the physicians in the community to, to sort of attribute you know those changes to SARS-CoV-2. And I think that really calls for really even more research to try to deepen understand uh, deepen our understanding of this condition and really most importantly development of biomarkers. So Sarah and others could have really a test to demonstrate that actually really I, I you know that, that this is this is an, an abnormal test and and most importantly that could also help us understand how to best treat it. You know it's very very important not only just to diagnose the condition but really to to inform treatment strategies of of long COVID. Mm-hmm. Now as we mentioned you know physicians and scientists have been studying long COVID or, or trying to and you know in, in my reading of this it, the numbers and the ranges that have been attached to this condition are, are kind of startling. The World Health Organization um, issued a definition of long COVID last year, and it, it kind of tried to put some some timelines on this. You know, usually three months from the onset of infection, the symptoms last at least two months. That can't be explained. But the journal Nature in just this past June writes that that definition has not been popular with patient advocates or researchers. And looking at the various studies, you have ranges of its prevalence from 5% to 50%. That is a very large range and, and seems, you know, or, with ranges that long, are they helpful to researchers or are they just are they a sign of confusion or, or more research needing to be done? I think really it's sort of a, it, it confuses the public and public generally does not really react very well to uncertainty and this very large uncertainty like what, what's the burden of long COVID is it really 5% or is it 50% and, and I think uh, really the the reason for these really the wide uncertainty around the prevalence of long COVID in the US and globally is really the heterogeneity of of, uh, of definitions you know people are using different definitions to define long COVID and if you really look at different things you're going to have different answers right if you're looking at elephant or a cow, you're going to have a different estimate of weight. And if you're looking at, you know, different ways of defining long COVID, you're certainly going to come out with 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 uh, d- different uh, uh, numbers. But I think what what uh, but there is a thread of consistency across all of these studies, and that's very 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 important to highlight to the public. Number one is that long COVID is real. This is not an imagined thing. You know, Sarah just tweeted us and said like, I have brain fog. This is real. People are suffering. Their suffering is real. They have problems. Problems. If we cannot diagnose it because we don't have a test to diagnose it, that's not her fault. That's our fault as a medical community. Two, that that um, you know, despite the variation and all of this, you know, generally speaking, you know, even within the lowest estimate possible, you know, some some estimate of four to seven percent, you know, those are still very high. They are staggeringly high because you had to multiply that percentage by the large number of people with SARS-CoV-2 infection in the U.S. and more than half a billion people. Globally, so the burden of long COVID is absolutely real, and it's actually not a small thing. You know, even by the smallest estimate, you know, this this is really a serious health crisis that needs to be taken into account. And we have um, a caller, Alexandria from Wildwood. Hi, um, I got COVID in May of 2022 of um, this, you know, this year, and I suffered for about five months, really fighting to be heard by doctors and specialists alike. 
I was told oftentimes to exercise more and basically treated like I was crazy and gaslit. And so I, I would, my question to you, what would you tell women, and obviously we know there's a tiered system of even women that continue to not get listened to, because I have insurance and I'm you know, a cisgender Caucasian woman, but then you can go down and you have minority women that are also not listened to very frequently and women with different socioeconomic backgrounds that are also treated as if they were absolutely crazy. Alexandria, thank you so much for, for that call. And, and doctor, what are you hearing in Alexandria's um, um, description? This this difficulty that so many people have of just getting their doctors to take them seriously, w- what do you have to say? First of all, I'm really sorry that this is really your experience and, and, and uh, really it shouldn't be like this. And it really speaks to the larger failure of the medical system to, to really be able to you know, understand and realize that this really this condition is affecting a whole lot of people and it is actually real and needs to be addressed. And and, and gaslighting, and especially medical gaslighting, you know, gaslighting by medical professionals is, is, is absolutely should not, should not be happening. You know, um, this this calls for a you know a really a, a sort of a, a broader action plan to help train and educate the medical community about the long-term consequences of SARS-CoV-2 infection, that this A is real and, and it affects a lot of people. And, and you know, if we, if we don't understand it fully, again, that's really not the, not the fault of the patient. That's really, you know, it's, it's a call to action to us to really deepen, to do more work to help understand it better so we can really bring treatment to, to these patients. So patients should be listened to. That's a, this, is really, this is really very, 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 very important. Actually, bothers me deeply that people are, are being gaslit, especially by medical professionals. And that's, that really should not be happening. You know, people should be listened to. You know, their, their, their experiences are real experiences. This is what they're having. If they're having fatigue or brain fog or, or other manifestations of long COVID, that is real. And, and so, so, so please know that you're not alone. You are absolutely not alone. Your experience resonates with so many. I hear this a lot. You are absolutely, absolutely not alone. It doesn't, doesn't justify what's happening to you, but I think it's really, it's really more of, a, of a, an impetus for all of us to, to really research this more, understand it more, and really help train providers, help train the community of provider physicians out there. So next time when you see a physician, they're actually aware of long COVID. They can, they can recognize it, they validate their symptomatology, and then hopefully you know, guide you on a, on a way for it to, to a treatment strategy. We're talking with Dr. Ziad Al-Ali about the state of COVID and long COVID. Dr. Al-Ali is the Director of Clinical Epidemiology and Chief of Research and Development at the Veterans Affairs St. Louis Healthcare System. He is also a clinical epidemiologist at Washington University's School of Medicine. And we have another caller um, uh, who wants to talk a bit about long COVID. Sarah from California is on the line. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, and um, thank you so much, Doctor. I just really appreciate your comments about um, physicians um, understanding and listening to patients. I myself have been gaslit by multiple doctors. That's actually been one of the hardest parts of having long COVID. Um, I have a master's degree. I was a school counselor before I got sick 15 months ago. And um, now I um, I can't work. Um, I have difficulty um, with the days and times. Um, things just sneak up on me. I can no longer give people directions to my house. Um, and I've seen on my chart things like somatic symptom disorder, anxiety, um, history of psychosomatic behavior, um, and I haven't had any history of depression, anxiety, 
psychological illness before getting sick. And it's just been so disheartening to not be believed. And I just want to thank you so much for bringing awareness to this. Doctor, what do you hear in, in what uh, what she's gone through here? Again, it really bothers me deeply to have all these accounts from all these patients being gaslit by medical providers, and 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 it's it's, it's absolutely should not be the case. We we know that 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 brain fog and neurocognitive changes really happen. There was a study in Nature, um, not not so long ago, showing that people with SARS-CoV-2 infection actually experience shrinkage of the brain, meaning that the brain volume decreases after the infection, and also decrease in the gray matter thickness. That's sort of the the um you know the the uh, area of the brain or the, the, the um, uh, t- tissue in the brain that's really responsible for a lot of the thinking. So, so it, it's, it's, this is real. This is really happening. There are structural changes that can happen to the brain after SARS-CoV-2 infection. This is, this is when, when, when people tell me like, oh, it's in people's head, it's actually true because, <laughs> because the virus is affecting the brain. The virus mm-hmm. is affecting the brain. The virus is affecting all these different things in the brain. And as a, as a consequence, you know, people experience brain fog and people experience, you know, potentially other things. There are sp- some people have strokes. Some people have, you know, other manifestations. So it's not really only, you know, brain fog. But but it really bothers me very deeply that that we have not really, even with a lot of research over the past couple and a half years, you know, the the, the a, a lot of the community of providers have not really caught up to this research, and and they are, you know, still, you know, practicing as if as if you know th- this this is really did not happen. Dr. Al-Ali, we've heard from you know, a couple um, you know, people with long COVID talking about you know, just how hard it is to get doctors to, to pay attention to these variable um, uh, symptoms and, and things that don't always fit a single definition. But you've actually been doing some recent research specifically into COVID and how it affects the body. And I, I wanted to ask you um, about, uh, about these, uh, the, these two pieces of research. One, I think, as you may have just mentioned, uh, was recently published in the journal Nature Medicine. And that was into what happens when a person is repeatedly infected with COVID, which is fairly common. What, what did you find? So we found that people who have a second infection or more than one infection have actually a higher risk of, of adverse outcomes, adverse health outcomes, than, than people who have only one infection. What does that really mean to people? What that really means to people that even if you've been infected once before, it's absolutely worth it to protect yourself from being infected again. That reinfection is absolutely not benign. Reinfection compared to no reinfection, compared to people who really have only one infection, people who get repeatedly infected infected have a higher risk of problems, both in the acute phase, meaning in the first 30 days after that second infection, they could get hospitalized, that could put them in, you know, in, in the ICU, in some cases, you know, although rare, but, but it could also lead to, 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 to death. And also, most importantly, really in the post-acute phase, you know, we've seen that, that reinfection also fuels or contributes to, to additional risk of long COVID. So you know, I hear from a lot of patients, well, I've had, I've had a prior infection and I didn't get long COVID. COVID, so am I out of the woods? No, you're not out of the woods because if you get a second infection, you're really trying your chances again. And, and maybe you've dodged that bullet the first time and did not get long COVID, but it does not really mean you're going to keep dodging the bullet every time. So protecting yourself from that second infection is absolutely worth it. Now, if you've been infected two times, protecting yourself from a third infection is absolutely worth it. This is very, very important for people to know, especially going into the winter season, that, that you know, reducing your risk of reinfection should continue to, to, to be your concern. Doctor, I'm curious. I've spoken with a number of people who've, who've said in the past, you know, I know I've gotten COVID once, but there was a time you know, earlier in 2020 where, where maybe I had it already. And 
you know, folks who, who've taken uh, the vaccine and are asymptomatic, should folks wonder, you know, should their assumption of how many times they've had COVID, should they think, I might have had it more times than I've, I've perhaps been diagnosed? Is that something that, that people should think about? So, so this is potentially true. I mean, you know, a lot, very early in the pandemic, you know, access to testing was constrained. So some people may have had COVID, but they did not know about it. And now, actually, not a whole lot of people are testing. You know, people are, you know, testing at home or foregoing testing altogether. And it's absolutely true. And in some cases, you know, COVID-19 infection is either asymptomatic, meaning that the patient might have it, but they don't really even know they have it. Or, you know, that, that, that it's very mildly symptomatic, so they don't really realize even, you know, they feel a bit under the weather for maybe a day, and it's like, oh, maybe I'm tired from something else, maybe stress at work, and then they get over it, and they never really know that they've been diagnosed. However, regardless of this, regardless of this, I think we, we the, the evidence, the scientific evidence is very, very clear that repeated infection is not good for you. You know, being being hit by, by a hammer on the head, you know, five times is worse than one time. So repeated infection is not good for you. And yes, you may have had maybe a first infection, second infection that is mild or asymptomatic. It does not necessarily mean that every time you're going to get the infection is going to be asymptomatic. And two, it doesn't mean that every time you're going to get the infection, you're not going to get long-term consequences. So our advice to people is to try to reduce that risk to the extent possible. And doctor, in our the last two winters of, of this pandemic have been terrible. Um, you know, you know, in terms of we thought we were out of the woods and we're right back into it. And this is you know repeated itself you know, both you know in 2020 and then in 2021 with the Omicron variant. But this winter does feel different. And you know, the public statements from our, our health authorities have said we expect fewer deaths. We expect that that you know the vaccines have made an impact. Are things really different? And and are you worried? I think I always go by like prepare for the worst and hope for the best. So definitely hoping, hoping, hoping that this winter season will be absolutely milder and will be better. But I think it would be fool not to be prepared for the worst, right? So that our hospital systems and, and also individually to, to really not treat this very, very seriously. I do remember vividly that some public health officials last year said, oh, we, we, you know, Omicron caught us by surprise because they were, that, that with, they were powered by the same wishful thinking that, oh, maybe, maybe we're over the hump and, and everything was going to be fine. We got hit with Omicron and, 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 and the story turned out to be very, 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 very different. So hope for the best and prepare for the worst. What does that really mean for people? What it means for you is that is that if it's, it's possible for you, if you're traveling this holiday season, wear a mask. You know, is it a nuisance? Well, yes, it's not comfortable. It's not, but, but it is definitely better than getting infected with SARS-CoV-2 and better than infecting other people with SARS-CoV-2. If you're going to a grocery store that's crowded to shop for, for, for you know, for, for your family, definitely try to try to get to, to mask. You know, this, we're not calling for draconian measures or extreme measures, but we're calling for some reasonable common sense measures to reduce the risk of infection to you and the people around you. And we have another caller uh, on the line with a question for uh, Dr. Al-Ali. Raoul, um, welcome to the show. And uh, what questions do you have? Yes, good day. Uh, hi. First of all, thanks for your compassionate approach to this problem. My quick question is, hopefully quick, it's a little muddy, but um, when I was teaching, occasionally, this is just an example for contrasting, a student would, let's say, get removed from their normal life by an injury, let's say they were in sports, and suddenly their whole world, they were sort of removed from a large portion of it, their socialization, et cetera, they would experience pain. So I wondered how, you know, and often they would end up being depressed, anxious, um, have other medical issues that were related to the sudden interruption of their normal routine, their normal socialization. And I'm not saying that 
the effects of long COVID are not real, but I wondered how that compares to other traumatic removals from your normal, I guess, daily operating procedure. Thank you, Raul. And, and, and doctor, does Raul have a point there that there's there's so much isolation, there's so much going on, but as you say, these are, are real things happening in people's brains. This is a very, very important question. So we actually studied this. I mean, we, we very early on in the pandemic, all of us were under lockdowns. We couldn't go to the gym. We couldn't visit family. We couldn't visit visit other other people who really, you know, friends. You know, we were really, you know, our our lives, you know, were upside. We as a nation, our lives was really upside down. You know, all of a sudden during the early phase of the pandemic. So we asked the question in, in a in a research paper. You know. Um, all of us experience this distress of really these fundamental seismic changes in our lives. But do people with SARS-CoV-2 infection have it worse? Meaning, do people who get actually infected with the virus experience higher level of mental disorders than than than, than the rest of us who, at the time, um, you know, were, were subject to all these like very drastic measures that really changed our lives? Right? I mean, it was a, you know, an enormous amount of distress nationally. Everything was was the news was all bad. You know, people were dying, et cetera. Et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. And the evidence base is very, 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 very clear that, that, that people with SARS-CoV-2 infection have a much higher risk of these problems. And again, not, not because it's a psych- psychosomatic disorder, because really the virus it sort of leads or, or results in structural changes in the brain and synaptic dysregulation or dysregulation in the brain in, how, in the way how brain cells communicate that ultimately results in these, in these disorders, be it brain fog or sleep problems or strokes or, or, or other manifestations. So um, there, is, there is nothing about stroke that is really, you know, that is really psychosomatic. It's a stroke, right? There is nothing about, you know, neurocognitive decline or neurocognitive changes that are really psychosomatic. People cannot recall things. And, and sometimes to their detriment, it's really, you know, it's really scary when they cannot really, you know, you know, find out, find their way home. You know, it, 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 they get lost. It's, a, it's really, it's really. Um, I, I, I think you talk, talk to real people who have this problem, and it's really, it's really, it's really absolutely, absolutely disheartening to sort of see that some people are experiencing these problems. Dr. Ziad Al-Ali is the Director of Clinical Epidemiology and Chief of Research and Development at the Veterans Affairs St. Louis Healthcare System, and he's the Clinical Epidemiologist at Washington University's School of Medicine. Dr. Al-Ali, thank you so much for being here, talking about your research, and, and talking about what long COVID is, a serious, real thing that, that people are still struggling with, even as we don't fully understand it. Well, thank you for having me. Today's episode was produced by Alex Hoyer, with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.